This is CliffCentral.com. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and CliffCentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law. Like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on CliffCentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg and this is The Laws of Life on CliffCentral.com. Alongside me today, Lionel Makokotlela. Welcome, Lions. Dumela Gary and Dumela to our podcasters. And today is another Tuesday and we're going to be talking law in the simplest format. Lines today you're going to hear how South Africans have reached the point where they literally hut full with uh, crime levels. No, Enough's it's enough kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, if not, if it's not political killings, it's going to be that. Yeah, smash and grabbers, home invaders, muggers, hijackers are tearing into our communities with impunity. It's getting out of hand, Gary. I think that uh, the, the 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 public wants to strike back, but is the law on your side? And when actually do you have the legal right? To use lethal force And how far can you go to protect your life Your loved ones And your money And can you shoot to kill That's the kind of song you play real loud at midnight as revenge (laughs) against your horrible and noisy neighbors, I think. You know, it's actually funny because the topic that we are actually talking about today, it's actually relevant to Tembisa because Tembisa have actually started their own policing community uh, policing forum where the gentlemen actually now patrol their areas and they do take the matters into their own hands in the event where somebody is actually trying to mark or breaking into somebody else's house. So I hope they are listening. We'll talk to Martin about that one. Mm. Uh, Today we're talking firearm legislation, criminal law and private defense and when you can and cannot use your firearm. And joining me today is someone who knows better than anyone else about it, all this in this country. His name is Martin Hood. He's a Joburg attorney. He specializes in criminal matters. He's a specialist in firearm law and uh, also in security legislation. He's been with me many times. Welcome back. Hi, thanks, Gary. Good, good. Hello to everybody. Some of the questions we're answering today have been posted by members of our partner, collaborative partner, Legal Talk South Africa, and the questions are on their Facebook page. Uh, Lines, uh, can you believe they now on umper 130,000 members? It's growing as always, Gary, and this is just a phenomenal um, relationship or partnership that we have with them, and I just hope we can actually grow even more from this. Yeah, their um, their members post questions and they get answered on their Facebook page, and we go into a little more detail here in studio. So it works both ways. I think between us and them, we're giving the best legal advice out there. Certainly, because we just don't get, bring any lawyer; we bring a specialist within the specific area of law that we are going to be tackling on that particular day. So it's just basically a win-win situation for both parties. Our email address: law at cliffcentral.com. Our Facebook page: the laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg and our Twitter. 
It's at uh, it's Hetzlaw H E R T Z L A W that H E R T Z L A W. You'll get it right eventually, Lance. Took you uh, how many years to get your MBA? Uh, just uh, 14. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about something that's become such a problem that reports are being released, including where you should avoid, what, what areas you should avoid. Uh, the other night I was traveling with a friend and she said, don't go off at that off ramp because there's smashing grabs going on there. It's, it's very sad that this is happening in our country. And uh, smash and grabs is is so prolific that we petrified half the time. So uh, last year, the following story made headlines, and I'm sure you'll probably remember it. It reads as follows: A female driver shot and killed a teenage scully. Those are the words from the headlines. Who tried to rob her in a smash and grab on Monday afternoon? So she shot and killed a teenager. And the traumatized woman then drove to the police where she reported the incident. And this was posted by Chanel Coco on Legal Talk South Africa. And she then poses the question, what happens in this case? And the replies, there were literally dozens and dozens of replies. Some people very cruelly said, well, well done, get these rubbish off the streets and so on. But that's not the way for us to deal with this. And let's talk to Martin What's going on out there, Martin, and how do we deal with this? Well, I think you've summed up, Gary. The, the, the crime situation in this country is, again, spiraling out of control. Um, I saw some statistics recently that um, just one category of crime, which is cash and transit, has gone up 45% this year. And we're in September, and we're not even in the high season for that type of crime, which happens predominantly towards the end of the year. Yeah. If um, firearm sales uh, to security companies or anything to judge the situation by, the security companies are um, purchasing more and more firearms because the demand for their services in the absence of a service from the police is uh, is substantially increasing. So I think that it's fair to say in the circumstances that uh, violent crime is on the increase, and we're certainly going to see, in my view, um, it getting worse because of um, the factors relating to the economy. People, um, we have social unrest as it is, but uh, we have social unrest based upon a lack of service delivery. We have social unrest uh, based upon poverty, and it can, it, these factors contribute substantially towards crime. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, go back to the case uh, on point here. This uh, female driver shot and killed a teenage scully, let me let me deal with these one by one, if I may, with you. She's driving along, stopped at a traffic light or whatever. Apparently, according to some of the replies, he had a knife. I don't know how true that is, but let's do we assume he did, or we we can take it both. If he did, or he didn't have a knife, I don't know whether it makes much difference. I think let's right now. let's yeah. deal with the with the general principles, and I yeah. think everyone should bear in mind that each situation has to be judged upon its own specific set of circumstances. Yeah. There's no one size fits all formula that says you can or cannot do something. Okay, so so March is in the car, and uh, she's got her handbag. She may have a computer as well in her handbag or wherever in the car. The mm-hmm. next thing. Someone smashes her window. She doesn't even see it coming, and he grabs her handbag. He's about to run off with it. Uh, I guess uh, she could. Let's assume that she could. Maybe she had a gun in her hand. Could she shoot him to avoid him taking the the bag and the computer? Before I give an answer to that, I'd like to make a general proposition, which 
I think simplifies um, the the laws relating to what we call self-defense or private defense. And it's quite simply as follows. As a private individual, you cannot, you should not take someone's life to protect your property. That issue has been extensively debated as far as the Supreme Court of Appeal. The right to life trumps the right to property. So you never shoot someone because they are stealing from you. That would not be legally justifiable. You might find yourself charged with murder or possibly culpable homicide. Mm. The only time that you can use force to uh, protect yourself and in the process go as far as killing somebody is when your life or that of someone that you have a legal obligation to protect is endangered. Now, again, I said a little bit earlier, that depends upon the circumstances. So let's now take some principles and apply them to the lady in the car. If the person had already got the handbag and was in the process of leaving the scene, she can't do anything. The crime is over. It's simply theft. She cannot use force to get back her handbag because she's putting someone's life above property. So, so he runs off with her life in, in his hands because she, it's got everything. It's got her handbag. It's got her credit cards, driver's license. It's got everything. This drives the public crazy. I hear what you're saying. But you've got to get this into the man in the street's head. He says, but, you know, I just need that person to leave my stuff, drop it, and, and go. Well, I, I, yeah. I, I always say to people who ask me that question, what if it were your son who was the criminal running away? Would you say that his life was worth a computer or a handbag? And I think mm. in that situation, a parent would realize, no, it's not. And they would, they would understand why the law is as it is. You cannot take someone's life. To protect or preserve property, it's as the, simple as the that. The smash and grabber knows this. That, that so he's got nothing. There's no real risk for him. I mean, I could walk past anyone's car, smash it, and grab whatever they got, knowing there's nothing they can do about it. I think that points to other social issues in the country in terms of policing, law enforcement, how effective our courts are. But our law is clear, and it it, it is very similar to most international jurisdictions that uh, most other jurisdictions that allow the use of force. So, it's. Settled law, it's quite simple. You cannot take someone's life to protect property. What happens if she screams out, stop, or I'll shoot? Does that make any difference? It doesn't difference? change the situation because it's still theft of property. Mm. However, if that person in the process of breaking into the car brandished a weapon such as a knife, yes. and that occupant of the car felt that her life was in danger and she responded with force to protect her life, and in the process, she took that person's life by shooting him. That would be legally justifiable. She has to be the subject of an attack. It can have started or be about to start. Mm. That attack must, in those circumstances, be perceived to be um, unlawful. And it must be perceived to be life-threatening. And if she responds immediately, then her actions would be justifiable. So the knife makes all the difference. The fact that he was in possession of a knife... Which was found next to him it's when she shot and killed him. That makes that, that changes it? What becomes important is the state of mind of the person who is subject to the attack. If that person reasonably believes in the circumstances that yeah. their life is in danger, force, including lethal force, can be used. It's not an armchair test, and that's why I said right at the beginning, each set of circumstances has to be assessed on those specific circumstances. Mm. Um, but I think most definitely – well, if I can give an ex a practical example, um, 
I was involved in a criminal matter a number of years ago where a person uh, believed that the taxi driver had a weapon and was going to assault him and there was an altercation and my client shot the person three times. The person dropped down dead and it turns out that he did not have a weapon. But the, the high court was convinced that my client believed that he was going to be the subject of a very serious attack mm-hmm. and he was acquitted of the charge of murder. Aubrey Offer uh, posted, he said, and I'm going to summarize it, but he says, I have literally two seconds or even less to make a judgment call. I make the call. The prosecution takes months of analysis and then deems me, he uses that word, guilty of murder. I am now charged. I have two seconds. The prosecutor had months. Where is the fairness in, of, in all of this? The victim of an attack cannot win, so he says. I think, again, you need to understand, the public need to understand the processes. The first principle is that If you're going to take somebody else's life, it has to be justifiable and it must be the subject of scrutiny. It must be subject to investigation because otherwise you're going to have abuse. You're going to have people that take somebody else's life and say it was self-defense when it wasn't, when it was in fact murder. Our legal processes are cumbersome. They are time-consuming, difficult, expensive, incredibly frustrating. I've heard it all and I agree. The fact is, however, that the National Prosecuting Authority and the police have an obligation to investigate anyone's death where it is not through natural causes. So there's always going to be an investigation. What does happen is, again, in my experience, I find that um, due to the crime situation, the police equally are frustrated with um, people that seem to be able to commit crime without consequence and my perception is that the police are sympathetic to the public where the public actually use force to protect themselves. They do do an investigation, but I find that um, compared to 10 years ago, far less people are actually charged and go through a trial for a murder. They are often charged with murder, but once statements have been taken and a proper investigation has been conducted, those charges are often withdrawn. Would it make a difference, uh, Martin? Forgive my, I have a terrible cold, so forgive, forgive my nasal question, but would it make a difference if she shot him in the leg to wound him, but not to kill him? No. Uh, and I would not advise doing that for the following reason. If your life is in danger and you are allowed to use lethal force to protect yourself, you must use the full force that you have available to yourself. If you go and wound somebody, I would argue if I were that person's legal representative who'd been shot, that it was not necessary to wound my client, and therefore it was unjustifiable, and you open yourself up to potentially a very large damages claim. So either you can shoot or you cannot shoot. There is no in-between. What about uh, pepper spray or tasers or gas guns with rubber, rubber bullets, that kind of stuff? These if are, you had it in your car? The, you? the, these are all term non-lethal alternatives, Yes, um, and they have a place, um, particularly uh, for women, and they are a lot more accessible to people who don't want to go through the process of obtaining a firearm license. Again, if you believe that your life is, is threatened in some way, uh, you can use force, which would include, for example, a pepper spray. If it is not a justifiable use of pepper spray, 
then you will be charged with the aggravated assault, assault GBH as we yeah, call it, yeah. grievous bodily harm. So again, if you believe that your life is in danger, then you could spray someone with pepper spray. I can't use the pepper spray to avoid him grabbing my briefcase out the car after he smashed it? Yes, you could. Yeah. Um, but would I be charged then with, with an assault? No, because if that person has already broken the window and is in the process of stealing your briefcase and you believe that you might come to harm, if that continues, you can spray them with pepper spray. So, again, it's protection of the person, not protection of property. Assuming it's protection of the computer only. Then you may well find yourself charged with assault GBH. I think what we should... uh Convey to our listeners is that even if somebody, even if the police don't charge you with uh, culpable homicide or murder, as in the incident we mentioned earlier, the the family of the deceased or the injured person can sue you civilly for 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 millions. I'm I'm yeah. finding that that is indeed the case with the security industry. The security industry is perceived to have deep pockets, mm-hmm. so where there are shooting events um, and Irrespective of the circumstances, uh, civil claims are instituted, dependence claims, maintenance claims are instituted by family members. So it's something that one should always be well aware of. And yeah. I would suggest that if you're going to own a firearm, you should make sure that you have public liability insurance as well. Hmm. Yeah. What about I'm the driver behind? And I see this happening in front of me. I have a, a firearm on my lap. Is I, I'm, am I in the same position as the person in, that's that's being injured? As that, such, that, yeah. that that's a very interesting question, and I want to again start by making a general proposition. And sorry, Martin. Everyone always says I was surrounded by hundreds of cars. We were stuck in traffic, and no one helped me. We hear this umpteen times. Well, I think that you can help. It just depends on to what extent you help, and one must be very careful. So the general proposition I want to start with is that we are all just civilians. We have no law enforcement powers other than those given to us in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act. You can make an arrest in terms of – you can make a civilian arrest, as it's called, in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act if a serious offense takes place in your presence. So, yes, the person behind or next to them could say, I'm going to stop this and get out and say, stop it. The difficulty with what is with what comes next, because yeah. if it's a simple theft and the person says stop it, and the criminal says I'm not going to and I'm running away goodbye, there's nothing that that civilian can do. He can't shoot the person to stop him from committing an offence. The offence is over, and the Criminal Procedure Act Section 49 does not give a civilian the power to use force to effect an arrest. Mm-hmm. So as as civilians, we do not make arrests unless we absolutely have to. Yeah. And it's only for a very, very serious offense. Secondly, you can only get out of your car and use your firearm, for example, if you believe that if you do not use your firearm and you do not prevent that criminal from doing what he is doing, then someone is going to get seriously injured or killed. So I'd like to give an example. Yeah. If you are behind a car and you see three criminals brandishing firearms, pointing them at a lady who's in the process of being dragged out of her car yes. and you see that they fire a shot and you believe in the circumstances that if you don't intervene, that lady is going to be seriously injured or killed. Mm-hmm. You can get out of your motor vehicle. You can go over to them and say, well, you don't need to give any warning, but you can intervene and you can use your firearm because you believe in the circumstances that the 
presence of firearms in that criminal's hands is going to reasonably lead to someone's death. That would be justifiable. Lines, uh, is this all making sense? No, uh, it yeah. is, but I just want to find out, uh, with regard to the community policing, can they actually take any action against somebody who's actually breaking the law? Well, that that opens up a, yeah, a completely works, different yeah. debate. because Let's hear about that. Yeah, yeah. Because first, first of all, even if you're a member of a community policing forum, you remain a civilian. So you only have the powers that a civilian has, which means mm. that you can only make an arrest if you see a serious offence taking place in your in your presence. That means as well that you cannot stop and search vehicles. You cannot stop and search people unless they give their consent. And this is an it's often misunderstood in the sense that um, people think that uh, if they see someone suspicious in the street, they can go up to that person and say, please identify yourself and can I search what's in your bag? They have no power to do so. Yeah. What about the security vans and trucks that are going around? Do they have the same powers as, as a civilian? They have only the powers of a civilian. So yeah. unless a person consents, a security officer yeah. may not search a vehicle, may not search a person or their possessions. Yeah. You got that, Lawrence? No. Yeah, yeah, but it's quite interesting because uh, uh, a lot of people actually do take the matter, uh, the laws into their own hands, especially yeah. in uh, in the townships where uh, where people are perceived to have stolen something and just people start attacking them. And we've seen actually uh, two weeks ago in KZN where two people actually have lost their lives because they felt that uh, they thought they kidnapped a child and only to find that it was a child of a friend. So those are some of the situations that are actually taking place. I, I think that demonstrates the need to be extremely careful. Taking the law into your own hands obviously is 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 very ill advised what i would suggest um for community policing forums is and this is a fairly common occurrence if you have a police officer with you and then you have members of the community policing forum yeah. that police officer has the powers to do searches and seizures mm-hmm. and that police officer can say I would like to search you and I'd like to seize you. And I have the following persons who I'm calling upon to assist me. But in the absence of a police officer, no search and seizure without consent. We had so many people posting. Estelle, she said, I know the law's the law, but really, what right does someone have to smash your window and steal your stuff and scare you half to death? This is the way people feel about it. Gary. Everyone feels. And Desiree is another one. She says, my son at 16 was robbed and stabbed multiple times and through his lung. He was on life support, but by God's grace, he survived. I will not hesitate to shoot the person who threatens the lives of my family. But that would yeah, be, that, that that would be completely justifiable yes. in both instances because her son was the subject of a potentially lethal attack. Yes. And she said, if someone threatens the life of my family, absolutely, mm. then you can use um, force, including taking somebody else's life to protect yourself or somebody that you have an obligation to protect. And she, she's actually spot on there. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, home invasions. Glenn, G-L-E-N, he writes, in crime gone rampant here, do I go to prison for shooting intruders in my house or within my property perimeter? So let's take a few questions, if I may, Martin. I'm sitting at home and I see robbers or burglars, whatever you want to call them, robbers are guys that are using force. Burglars are people who come into steal. Is, is well, I think what we need to do, is, first yeah. of all, people use the, the, the word being robbed or a, robber, a robbery often incorrectly. Yeah. Uh, theft is where there is 
um, someone that your property is stolen without any threat of violence or force. Yeah. A robbery involves violence or the threat of violence. So a robbery typically would be where someone has a firearm or a, a sharp object like a knife and says, I'm going to stab or shoot you unless you give me your handbag. So we're talking about a robbery yeah. where there is either the use of force or the potential use of force. Okay, I don't know what this one is because all I know is I'm sitting at home and there are burglars or robbers, there are men climbing over the wall. I see it happening. I'm in my house. I'm, I'm shitting myself if I can use that term. Can I fire? Can I use my firearm? What can I do? I mean, they're getting into my house. I'm in danger. So the basic principle, again, is you can only use force. And we always tend to think in terms of use of a firearm, but it's force. And the use of force could be a firearm. It could be a brick if necessary. You can only use force if you reasonably believe your life is in danger Mm. and that your response is proportional in the circumstances. So seeing someone climb over your fence is not a threat to your life. Well, what's he going to do there? There are a number of alter- There's a number of things that should be taken into account. And I, I know that we're talking hypothetically and in the real world people feel very differently, but this is what the law requires of you. First of all, if you can avoid a confrontation with those criminals, you should avoid the confrontation. That means get out, get away. Mm-hmm. That's the first rule. We as South Africans, often put ourselves into a confrontation. In other words, we look for the confrontation. We go towards a confrontation. One must be very careful about that because you could find yourself being subjected to the argument that you created the harm and that your actions were unlawful. So the first principle is if you can avoid the confrontation, do so. Get out, get away. Have a safe place in your house. Get behind a security gate. Lock yourself in. Call for help. As soon as you go into that environment where you are potentially creating a confrontation, you may well find that you become, uh, you find yourself on the wrong side of the law. You become the criminal. So one must be very, very careful about that. Sorry. Uh, there was a, uh, an attempt case uh, in Midrand where a particular person was driving a particular car and they were getting to a, a, a garage, I mean, a door. And there were two uh, guys, uh, there was an attempted robbery or hijack. In that sort of instance, as you can see in the video, somebody had a gun. Can you shoot in this case? Absolutely. Um, I've just seen the video. Obviously, we can't uh, uh, show the video to the listeners, but it was clear that these people were trying to hijack uh, the driver of the vehicle, and one person came around to the passenger side carrying a firearm. Now, I would believe in those circumstances that if I didn't do something, my life would be in danger. And I would certainly not hesitate to use my firearm if I could get to my firearm, if I had my firearm with me, etc. That would be a, a justifiable use uh, of a firearm. It's also um, quite important that there's independent, there would be independent evidence. That was caught on a, a CCTV camera. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that would be very important um, if, uh, if there was a person killed and there was a police investigation. And that um, touches upon a very important point that I'd like to stress Two important points that the listeners need to be aware of. The first one is when you are in that situation, you are in a very emotional state immediately after a confrontation where someone might have been killed. You don't have to make a statement, and it's not advisable to make a statement unless you've got someone, an attorney, to give you legal advice and assistance. I don't care what a policeman says 
to someone that has been attacked. You do not have to make a statement. And, and, do, and don't make the statement until you get a lawyer to, to help you draft the don't statement. Absolutely. Ma- don't make yeah. a statement. Even if the policeman says, I'm going to arrest you, and it's an yeah. all-too-common occurrence, yes, unfortunately, yeah. rather spend one night in jail than 20 years in jail because yeah. you say or do the wrong that, thing. That very statement will be used against you for, for the rest Absol- of your life. Absolutely. And in court and, and all over. And, and yeah. secondly, if you can, you should... Take photographs of the crime scene immediately afterwards because often what happens is a firearm or a weapon may be present, but in the immediate aftermath Mm. of the crime, there are people milling around, things get removed, you lose evidence, and then it becomes more difficult for a person to say, but there was a firearm, I saw it. If you take a photograph of the firearm on the ground someone immediately. Someone could steal it as well. So take well, this, the picture before someone takes th- it. Yeah. This is often, unfortunately, what happens. You must yeah. think about yourself and self-preservation. You have to do whatever you possibly can to record that crime scene. Mm. Um, the police, unfortunately, are not particularly good at securing crime scenes either. So often evidence is contaminated or disappears as well. And you find yourself saying, I saw a firearm or a knife. And it's been removed from the crime scene, and no, you cannot prove it. No one will it. believe you. The you court cannot may not prove believe it. you. Absolutely, yes. Martin. Let's get back to the jumping over the wall, climbing over the wall. You saying, just don't run out into the garden, even though he's on your property, which which most people say they can do. I've heard this umpteen times. People say the the, the, the burglars or the robbers were in my garden. I went out and I shot them. So let's look at the offence. Yeah. If someone jumps over your wall and comes into your property, at, they're at trespass- night, in the middle of the night, yeah. they're trespassing. Yes. So that's a with rel- intent to do something. It's yeah. a relatively minor offence. You cannot get into the mind of that person and ascertain what their true intentions are. There's no attack on your life at that stage. There's not even been an attempt to break into your home. Well, he didn't come and say hello to me. I mean, he's not a friend of mine. There's no reason for him to be on that on my property. In the middle of the night. I I fully agree with you, Gary, but there's also no legal justification for taking preemptive action. For you to kill him. You cannot assume what that person's state of mind is and what their intentions are. There has to be. maybe coming to sell me mealies or something for (laughs) that. I I, I hear where you're coming from, but we have these legal tests to avoid abuse of the law, to avoid people taking the law into their hands, their own hands. And saying, but it was justifiable when they've committed murder. There has to be reasonable and objective evidence that shows that that person or persons intended not only to trespass into your property, but to use force against you or your family and in the process threaten your life. Only then can you say my use of force would be reasonable. Okay, so the answer is there are people climbing over my wall. I get back into my bedroom. I lock the door. If there's a security security gate, I lock it. I phone whoever, the police, one zero triple one, if they'll come or whoever will come, and I sit and wait. Can I give two yeah. different situations? One is... One is a very it sounds crazy, doesn't it, Lance? But, uh, it does. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. but it's, it's, it's there. the way it is. It, yeah. it's, it's there. Fundamentally for the protection of everyone's constitutional rights. We mustn't forget that. We all have constitutional rights. I want to give two situations. One is a very tragic situation. I'm not going to use names, but um, there was a a house uh, in Gateng that got broken into, and the homeowner um, fired two shots through a door, uh, believing that um, the person on the other side of the door was a criminal. 
and he shot his daughter and killed her. So that obviously his, his belief um, was not reasonable yes. because he could not ascertain the nature of the threat. Was he charged? He was not charged because of the, the tragic yeah, circumstances. The, tragedy, the person yeah. had obviously been through a tremendously yeah. traumatic time. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, illustrates the need to be sure of what you are doing. Yes. But if you take those same circumstances where you or I as the homeowner know that there is someone in our house and we have a locked door and we say, if you so much as open that door and you persist in trying to get into this bedroom, I am going to shoot you. And then whoever is on the other side of the door starts banging on the door and it's clear that they're trying to get in to cause you harm, then you would in those circumstances reasonably believe that your life or your wife, that of your wife or your children would be in danger. And then you could use um, lethal force because you've taken steps to make that person aware that you believe your life is in danger. Mark, let's give you another analogy. It happens all the time. People wake up in the middle of the night. If they do, and they find there are burglars in the house that are moving out the TVs and everything else in, from the lounge. He's in the bedroom. What does he stand and watch this? What does he do about it? Yes. He lets, the, he he lets, lets them take the he lot. He lets the yeah. people take their possession. In fact, he's insurance possession. the next day and says, pay me out. Yes. Yeah. As, as, as unpalatable as it may sound, yeah. that is what the law requires of you. Yes, you could go out there and you could say, stop stealing my stuff. But why would you want to put yourself in a confrontation where up until then there is no confrontation? But I have a firearm and what I want to do is I want to stop these these bastards from doing this so I want to shoot them and that's exactly what I can't do well let's just take your statement yeah. you form the intent to kill somebody yes because he's stealing my stuff is it legally justifiable to kill somebody for theft only yeah you've said no and we must accept that yes yeah and my next point is not necessarily a legal point but we must think um of the consequences of putting ourselves into confrontations where there isn't a confrontation. It may result in loss of life. It could result in the loss of your own life to the detriment of your family. So one must be very careful before deciding to put oneself in a confrontation where there's potential use of lethal force. You, you're walking around in a shopping center. You have your firearm with you and there are burglars that have, robbers that have just robbed the jewelry store making, running away with probably millions of rands worth of stuff. Uh, you've got to stand and watch this. Well, let's take two different situations based yeah. upon those circumstances. The first is if they're simply running away, the crime is complete. Well, theft is an ongoing offense. They've com- they've got the jewelry and they're running away, and they don't pose a threat to anybody. They must run. It's the police's job to go and mm-hmm. find them and arrest them. If, however, they are running out of the shopping center and they are firing firearms indiscriminately to create terror and confusion, then yes, you can use your firearm to stop them doing what they are doing because they're threatening other people's lives in a manner that could result in death. I think you're making the, the point very clear today. It's it's fantastic that we have these discussions. Unless your or your loved one's life is in danger, be very, very careful. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what it is. Let them take your cell phone. Let them take your computer. They can take your bag with your credit cards and everything. But whatever you do, don't shoot them. That's the way it is. That's the law of the of the land. Well, again, if, to come from a slightly different perspective, if you 
create a confrontation because someone is stealing your handbag and you end up being killed, what will your family think? Mm. The first thing that would go through their mind is, why didn't he just let them take the handbag? Mm. No. I would have a husband. True. Absolutely. We have so many questions. This is also interesting here. Um, if you have a firearm license and you carry a firearm, do you have to conceal it or can you display it? What's the law of the country? Um, that's very straightforward. You have to conceal it. For a, a, a handgun, it has to be in a holster designed to carry a firearm, to carry a handgun. If it's um, a, a what we call a long arm, a rifle or a shotgun, it has to be concealed in a bag or carrier that is designed to conceal it as What's well. What's the law of the USA? We see all these movies. What's the law there? There's been a massive shift in the last 25 years in the United States. The United States came from exactly the opposite perspective. You could not carry concealed. You had to carry a firearm openly. Yes. Um, the thinking and the laws have changed in the United States, and it's exactly the same. In most states, uh, the, the majority of states allow concealed carry. And that is that um, you can carry a firearm and not display it. You can carry it publicly and display it in America in certain states. Mm. But um, one must bear in mind that uh, it's foolish to do that because you're just inviting people to try and take your firearm if they can see that you have one. Yeah. Here's a question that uh, could tickle your taste buds or tickle you pink, whichever. According to a report a few weeks ago, Martin, a, Bloemfontein, a former Bloemfontein Celtic soccer player survived a near-death experience after the police opened uh, fire at his car. Apparently, he was having sex with a female occupant in the car when the police stopped, and uh, he tried to avoid being jailed. And they, they they sped off and gave chase and shot at the car, etc. The first question is, was he doing anything wrong? Can you have sex in in, in your car? I'm trying <laughs> desperately to avoid any puns here. Um, I think having sex in public is an offence. So depending on where the motor vehicle was parked and whether it was in view of the public, um, yes, he would have committed a petty offence. Um, and it's certainly not an offence. What's it, public indecency? It's public indecency, yes. Yeah. It's a petty offence. It's something that you get a, a slap on the wrist fine for. It's like pissing the putt. I think it's the same. Very kind of, similar. Yeah. It's most certainly not an offence of such seriousness that the police could use force to arrest you. Mm. And we're getting into the, the realm of Section 49 and the powers of the police, which is extremely problematic because – you can a police officer, and I want to stress a police officer can only use force if there's no other possible way to effect an arrest, and that person constitutes an ongoing danger. Mm -hmm. Now, having sex in public and running away doesn't constitute an ongoing danger to anybody. Yeah, except to the girl he was with, maybe. No, no <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid. The yeah, pun. they say size matters. The bigger the car, the easier it is. Yeah. So I'm not so sure. <laughs> uh, what about the, the people who are posting all over on uh, Legal Talk SA? They lost their firearms negligently. Uh, Johnny says uh, his firearm was stolen. When the police recovered it, they charged him with negligence. Okay, so what's going on with this? So I think we need we need to to um, distinguish between how the police understand the law and what the law is, because mm. the police unfortunately are not lawyers and they don't know the law. Losing a firearm negligently is an offence. Losing a firearm is not necessarily negligent. Yes. So the police would have to prove that you did not take the legal steps. To safeguard a firearm And the law 
actually gets a little bit complicated here because you have what the Act requires, and the Act basically creates what we call a strict responsibility. In other words, no deviation from it, but the Act has been interpreted to read into it that your actions must have been reasonable. Mm. So only where your um, loss of a firearm is not reasonable, you cannot reasonably explain it, are you guilty of the negligent loss of a firearm. What's the uh, punishment for that? Up to five years in prison. Do they send people to prison for no. that? No. 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 Martin, a lot of people are seeking to get firearms today. They they need to protect themselves. How easy is it or difficult? Uh, it is difficult. Um, the good news is that more and more people are buying firearms, and I think that um, we are past uh, any sort of uh, government um, attempts to disarm the public. I think that... The Firearms Control Act has become relatively settled in its application. So getting a firearm for self-defense is quite possible. Um, I would suggest that if you want to do it properly, there are a number of service providers that can assist with getting firearm licenses, that you spend a little bit of money and you, you do it properly. Yeah. But Including yourself, you do this as well. I, I do, right. do, yes. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally... If you can prove a need to protect yourself, um, the what, do, what, do, what do you have to? What really do you have to show? I think it depends on everyone's specific circumstances. But um, let's say, for example, that you live in a high crime area where there's low policing levels and there's a great deal of violent crime. If you are competent, if you have a proper safe, the police should give you a firearm license. Can you get license. one in Tembisa if you yes. live there? Yes, and in, fa and in fact, I, I was involved in some litigation many years ago where the police actually did the equivalent of redlining certain areas because yeah. they believed that people would not be responsible. Yeah. And we took it to court and we won. Um, your social status, where you live, who you are, may be factors that the police take into account, but they're not necessarily constitutionally allowed to do that. If you can say that you comply with the legislation, competency, you have a safe, and you can explain why you need a firearm. And living in a high-crime area is a very good reason yes. to have a firearm. You should be given a firearm license for self-defense. Lines, before we let Martin go, is there anything you want to ask? Oh, no. All we we covered it all. No, certainly. Yeah, we've been talking to uh, Martin Hood. He's a specialist on uh, on the subject, uh, criminal matters and uh, firearm legislation. Forgive my cold. As I've said before, it's been a pleasure hosting you. We're going to ask you to come back. You've been with us many times. You'll be back once again. To uh, you listening, uh, please don't go away because straight after this, I'm talking to Jan de Beer from the Attorney's Fidelity Fund. Very, very interesting. Unfortunately, there are lawyers that take off with your trust monies. So Jan will explain to you what the Fidelity Fund really does about that. Uh, Martin, that's an interesting one. You'll take a listen to the podcast, won't you? Yes, I will. Thank you very yeah, much, good. everybody. Thanks. And anything else before we let you go? There was one small point quickly that uh, you and I briefly discussed, and that was um, uh, if a person is involved in an assault, can a firearm be taken away? And I want to stress that all firearm owners have the responsibility to engage in proper conduct. And getting involved in an assault of somebody else, for example, because your, your ex-girlfriend has decided that they prefer to be with the person that you assault, 
means that your firearm should be taken away and you should be the subject of an investigation because you have no right to assault somebody else um, without justification. So be responsible. Yeah, many thanks, Martin Hood. And to you, our listener, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and CliffCentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on CliffCentral.com. Presenting the Attorney's Fidelity Fund and the Attorney's Insurance Indemnity Fund on CliffCentral.com. Your champions in the legal profession. I'm Gary Hertzberg, and this is the Laws of Life on CliffCentral.com. Alongside me today, Lionel Makokutlela. Welcome, Lions. Dumela Gary and Dumela to our podcasters. Today is a further show in a series with the aim of increasing awareness of the role and responsibilities of the Attorney's Fidelity Fund. And uh, as we know, this fund exists to protect you should your attorney turn crooked and run off with your money which he holds in his trust account for you. And uh, the Attorney Fidelity Fund encourages and enables you to use the services of your lawyer with confidence. And that's what we want. Unfortunately, it does happen that dodgy lawyers have stolen, in many cases, millions and millions of rands from their clients by looting trust accounts, which is very sad. Joining us today is Jan de Beer. He's the Risk Management Executive of the Attorney's Fidelity Fund, and Jan will be explaining how the fund tackles a crooked lawyer who has stolen your money. Welcome again to you. Thank you, Good to have you, Jan. Uh, Pleasure being here. Thank you. So, Jan, maybe you can just give us, if you don't mind, two or three real examples of cases you've handled at the fund against attorneys and what they did and what transpired. If if I look at the the, the, uh, processes of the fund itself and... and, um, just, just maybe to to, to step a, uh, take a step backwards as well, is is the fact that we we of course react on on claims that we're receiving from 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 claimants, um, and in that in in terms of our processes, we would we would prefer that uh, those claimants would have then opened up uh, a, a proper criminal case with um, with the police itself. Um, after all, we we are talking about the criminal activity here. We we talk about monies, uh, trust monies that has been stolen, um, and and what we specifically do from from that side, uh, f- picking up the, the the matter, then to a large extent on behalf of the claimant, whereby we go ahead and and specifically assist the the uh, investigating authorities in terms of making sure that that matter is properly investigated that we through all the information that is available uh, through our claims processes um, and the, the the affidavits of the parties that are involved to make sure that we we build up a, a proper case in respect of of uh, the theft that has been perpetrated in that we then also go as far as also to assist the, the prosecuting authority to make sure that we've been able to formulate those charges properly and correctly as well to ensure a proper prosecution. Um, for us, we, we, we typically see that uh, the, the, the 
the outcomes from a prosecution point of view is, is specifically important for us as the fund to ensure that there is a proper consequence uh, to the act that has been perpetrated against the 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 the, the, the public, um, and that becomes important for us in terms of how we build a proper deterrent um, in terms of the actions on the part of 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 attorneys that that do do go down that line of 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 uh, stealing and misappropriating the the the, the client's funds itself. In, in some of the examples that, that we look at as well is that we see that um, uh, a lot of the sentences are normally a custodial sentence um, and that, that can be um, anything up to uh, a minimum period of about, about 15 years uh, as such. Um, but we see the courts um, unfortunately not dealing consistently uh, on on those matters as well, um, we have seen some recent cases where a lot of lot of the uh, work that has been done by the team to ensure a successful prosecution being undone with very lenient sentences as well. <clears throat> what are the charges normally? Is it what a theft? It is. It's a theft charge, theft. most definitely, um, yeah. and that that. It depends on the actual underlying um, information itself um, in terms of being able through a, a proper uh, forensic investigation to be able to prove that the theft was in fact perpetrated. Mm -hmm. It also relates to um, additional components uh, to, to that charge as is a general deficiency in a trust account of an attorney um, where you want to bring into play other components in terms of compliance uh, to, to, to legislation as well. Um, but in, in that, we, we very much dependent on on the claimant as well to come forward with the right information to cooperate as well in the investigation and prosecution process um, we do unfortunately see a lot of instances whereby once the fund is actually paid out the claim to the claimant that there is a general reluctance of claimants to participate in the prosecution process which is unfortunate yeah. um, because that that would find ourselves in a very difficult position to 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 make a proper case or to prove it properly in front of a court um, in respect of the, the, the theft that has been perpetrated. Does the uh, fund pay out before conviction or does it wait for conviction? <laughs> in, in terms of the nature of the fund and how it's been set up, the actual conviction or proof of theft in, in, in court yeah. is not a condition in terms of paying out the claim. Mm -hmm. um, I believe we go a long way uh, in, in terms of making sure that we compensate the, the, the claimant in respect of the loss that they suffered um, to make that conditional upon a successful prosecution um, I, I don't think that that is in line with the objective of the fund in terms of compensation. Well, a conviction can take years, can't it? Especially if it's opposed and there's a defense raised, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Uh, the complainant can't wait that time. They need their money. Definitely, yeah. and then the, the 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 proof of 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 the or the level of proof that is required in in terms of the payment of the claim is different from the actual criminal prosecution itself in terms of the conviction of of theft. Um, so in in there we we find that the, that the cases would probably run a period of about three to four or even five years mm. um, to be able to secure a a, a successful prosecution, um, and and and. Uh, in in that uh, it it it's will be unfortunate if you want to 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 delay a payment of a claim as a result Absolutely. of the prosecution process. Yeah, and what about recovery against the attorney who stole the money, the law of subrogation, and all the rest? Do you do you recover it, or you've got the right to? Do you? 
We, we definitely have the right to recover. Yeah. Um, through subrogation, of course, we, we basically step into the shoes of the, of the claimant. Yeah. Um, and we normally pick that up specifically after we've paid the claim itself um, to make sure that, that we, uh, as I explained, our, our, our prosecution processes can follow through properly in terms of, of um, um, proving the, 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 the case itself. From a recovery's point of view, of course, um, in terms of the Attorney's Act, um, we can then recover the monies from the attorney. Yeah. And then we need to make proper distinctions as well. Um, if it's a sole practitioner that, that has committed the, the, the theft, um, yes, he will definitely be prosecuted as well. But the recovery process uh, is, 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 is more of a civil recovery process. Yes, it can be that we do obtain uh, through our prosecution process an order of court uh, whereby the monies must be repaid as well. Um, and, and that we then, of course, manage as well uh, through, through our, our uh, prosecution processes. If, however, the, 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 uh, it was a, a partnership or if it's a member of or, or staff that actually stole the money, um, then, of course, the, the, the practitioner itself, himself or herself is not, not necessarily criminally liable, but they are definitely liable for, for the payment of the, uh, of, of the, of the monies that were stolen. Um, those uh, practitioners are, of course, both in, in terms of whether they're directors or partners in this firm, are jointly and severably liable. Yeah. In respect of the monies that are held in, 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 in the trust account. So yeah. in that case, we will then pursue the recovery of those monies from all of those directors or from all of those uh, partners in that firm if we've not necessarily achieved it in terms of our excursion processes, in terms of our, our initial claims um, um, assessment processes itself. Um, so we will definitely come through a process of making sure that there is actual recovery of the claims that has been paid. Um, in respect of, of, of theft of trust monies, uh, whether so, you, you, yeah. you're criminally liable or, or, or not, yes. Okay. The attorney himself is not let loose to go and practice again. Is he struck off the roll generally? Practitioners would be struck off the roll, most yeah. definitely. Can uh, they be readmitted and uh, does it happen? Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, they, they, they go through a process of, of um, applying to court for readmission. Um, in that we How long after the offence or after they've been jailed or whatever? <laughs> There's not necessarily a time limit to it. Mm -hmm. um, but what we do find is that in terms of our processes, a key component, of course, that they need to satisfy uh, is, as such is that whether they've actually are in, in, in fact in good standing to be able to um, to be able to practice. Um, and part of that questions that need to be answered is whether they've actually made good the money that was in fact stolen. So in a lot of instances, we do find that the court would ask us whether the practitioner actually did repay the money that was yeah. stolen yeah. Um, or not. And that's got a direct implication on, 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 on whether they're being readmitted or whether they've made an arrangement with us to repay the monies. But that's dependent on each of the underlying cases itself, whether we are willing to enter any in into, into any time of, of type of repayment arrangement with the practitioner. Yes. Um, but even if we do, we do manage it very strictly. So that if we do find ourselves that, that uh, there is a proper repayment arrangement in place in terms of the monies that has been stolen, um, and, and uh, there was um, readmission granted, um, if there's any type of default in respect of that arrangement, that is immediately communicated back to the 
to the uh, regulator as well, being the law societies, who will then consider appropriate action against that practitioner in respect of being in default with regards to that arrangement. Yeah, one, excuse me, one final question is, can the public deal with attorneys with confidence? I think with the, 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 the measures or the, 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 the components or the, the existence of the fund, yes. and not just the fund, but also the attorney's insurance indemnity fund, mm. does create the environment whereby uh, the, the, the public can go to a practitioner and they would know that they are properly protected uh, in the event that there's any type of, of default, whether there's negligence or whether monies are in fact stolen. But it doesn't remove the fact that if one, if one looks at this as, as a consumer of legal services, one should also consider appropriately whether uh, that person that you are engaging is in fact able to provide you with the services that you're requiring mm. and is that person actually credible. It doesn't stop that, that consumer to go back to the regulator and ask them to confirm whether there are any issues or matters raised against that specific practitioner before they engage with any um, uh, material legal Yeah, the law society is there for you. Uh, it's, it's on the net. Just phone them up and I'll tell you whether the lawyer is in good standing or not. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. It, it, it's those basic steps that I think the, the public can, can go out and perform mm. um, to satisfy themselves that they, are, that they are comfortable. And then, of course, the, 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 the attorney's fidelity fund and the attorney's insurance indemnity fund will then stand in in the case if there is any loss suffered on the part of the, 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 the public. Excellent. Many thanks to you, Jan de Beer, and we hope to see you again. Thank you for this. Cheers for now. Thank you for the time. Yes. Yeah. Okay, thank, thank you. Bye. Law. Like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life. With Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.